First Corinthians, First Corinthians, First Timothy, chapter six. We begin in verse nine. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, they hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 12. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to direct your attention in particular to verses 11 and 12 where Paul issues this charge to Timothy, but thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. You'll notice in verse 11, and I have to admit that this kind of escaped me in Numerous readings from 1 Timothy, you'll notice how Paul refers to Timothy as a man of God. But thou, O man of God, he writes. Now Paul certainly bestowed a title of honor on his young protege Timothy when he referred to him as a man of God. Interesting to note throughout the Bible how many biblical characters are referred to by that same designation. Moses, a number of times, is referred to as a man of God. David is called, on at least a couple of occasions, a man of God. Elijah and Elisha are both referred to as men of God. And it seems that in many instances, this designation is given in general to those who occupy the office of prophet. We have a number of unnamed prophets that bear that title as well. Now, there's a sense in which the title can be applied to everyone that devotes himself or herself the way we should to the study of God's word. So we find the designation in that very familiar passage that describes for us the inspiration of the Bible in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. I hope you know these verses. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then note it, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And in that instance, I would take the phrase, the title man of God, to be something of a generic title applied to those that give themselves to the study of God's word, which should include all of us. 
It's not hard to figure out, therefore, is it, that a man of God is one who reads and studies the Bible as well as one who serves God and serves Christ? I think those verses in 2 Timothy make it pretty plain that his study is not just academic. It serves the purpose, rather, of furnishing him thoroughly for the good works that he should be engaged in. And so I dare say that this designation that every Christian should want to own is this designation, a man of God. And so I wonder this morning, just how do others identify you when you come to their minds? The world, you know, has a way of giving identification badges, if you will, to those around them. Some of your peers may be known as great alcohol consumers. There's Fred the Drunkard. He's a real weekend party animal. Oh, there's a common designation. Or there's Dick the drug user. Or there's Bob the big spending gambler. Or there's Phil the sports fanatic. Or there's Harry the tightwad. He wouldn't spend a nickel to save his life. And on and on the designations go. Now, some designations are undoubtedly better than others. Some people are designated as being hard workers. And some Christians, unfortunately, are designated as being hypocrites. In the world's mind, the church is full of them. Now, where the Apostle Paul was concerned... He didn't really care much how people judged him. So he writes in 1 Corinthians 4, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Not only do those verses show us how unconcerned Paul was by the slanderous designations his critics would apply to him, but he also shows the one person he was concerned about in such matters, and that was the Lord himself. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. And it's before the Lord especially that a Christian should want to be judged to be a man of God. And so the question then to consider this morning is this, how can such a designation be gained by a Christian? That Christian man, and I'm using this uh, in a very generic sense as applying to women as well, as oftentimes the term man does in the Bible. How can a Christian man or a Christian woman uh, gain this designation as a man or woman of God? And that's what I want to call your attention to today. In 1 Corinthians, for, I keep calling Timothy Corinthians. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, we find a number of descriptive actions that ought to characterize the man of God. And they are very simply put these. You'll find each one of these in these two verses. A man of God is one who flees. He's one who follows He's one who fights, 
and he's one who lays hold on eternal life. He flees, he follows, he fights, and he lays hold on eternal life. So with these exhortations in mind, let's look for the remaining moments at these marks of a man of God. The marks of a man of God. And the first thing we note is that a man of God flees. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Paul writes in verse 11. That's the key reason that I chose to to read from Genesis 39 this morning. You have the account of a very godly man fleeing from the temptress that would seduce him. He fled. On the surface of it, such an activity might seem to be unmanly. A man of God flees. Aren't we taught that a Christian stands his ground and fights? Haven't we been taught by Paul in Ephesians 6 that the Christian is to take to himself the whole armor of God and that after the pattern of the Roman soldier, there was no protection for the soldier's back? To flee meant exposing yourself to the enemy's weapons. Well, I'm reminded of King Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1 where he writes, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven. And then he goes down the list of various times and purposes under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, and so on. So can we apply, I believe, that same principle to our text in 1 Timothy 6, There is a time to flee, and there is a time to fight. We find them both mentioned in this text, don't we? We need to recognize, therefore, when it's time to flee, and when it's time to fight, and under what circumstances do you flee or fight? There's certainly no reproach for a Christian to flee at certain times. Joseph in the New Testament now, not the Joseph we read about, but Joseph in the Gospel of of, uh, Matthew was instructed by an angel to take Mary, his wife, who was at that moment bearing the Messiah in her womb. He was told by the angel to flee to Egypt, and in so doing, he avoided the sword of Herod, which was meant to kill the Messiah. In Matthew 10 and verse 23, Christ instructs his disciples by saying, But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. And in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 16, Christ prophesies of the destruction of Jerusalem and instructs his disciples that when that time came, they were to flee to the mountains. So there are times when a Christian must flee. You could say that a Christian is one who has gained the wit to flee under certain circumstances. 
when John the Baptist was busily engaged in baptizing many Jews and then was approached by the Pharisees and Sadducees who failed to heed his counsel by repenting of their sins, we read John's word to them in Matthew 3 and verse 7, but when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That is what a Christian has done, you know. He has fled from the wrath to come. He takes seriously the statements in Scripture that speak of the coming wrath on this world, and he flees to Christ, and he finds his refuge in Christ. And if you've never done so, I implore you this morning that you flee from this present evil world that is doomed and find your refuge in Jesus Christ. Now in our text back in 1 Timothy 6, we find Paul specifying the things from which the man of God is to flee. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. He writes in verse 11. And the question that naturally arises would be, what are these things that the Christian is to flee from? And the answer to that question is given to us in the previous verses. Look at verse 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Those are the things that are specified as things from which the Christian is to flee. Hurtful lusts temptation and the world's snares, destruction and perdition, the love of money, flee from those things. Paul specifies in other places some specific things that a man of God or a Christian should flee from. So in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, he writes, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Let me just put the word out here now uh, with regard to this text. Fleeing fornication. How are you doing in controlling your internet and your phone? I had heard some while back, I don't know if this still holds true today. This is somewhat dated. I suspect it's pretty true today that the top two uses of the Internet were as followed. The top use was uh, for religious purposes. Christians use the Internet a lot, and uh, you know, I'm sure, that there are vast amounts of resources that can help you and be a blessing to you on the Internet. Top use, religious purposes. Second to top use, pornography. And I can't help but wonder how many in the top one category are also involved in the number two use of the Internet. Oh, I hope you've taken safeguards. I hope that you're guarding yourself. And I hope that if you're guilty of such things, you'll heed the admonition, flee fornication. 
Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. A little later on, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, Paul writes, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. There's another specific thing. And idolatry can be a very broad category. Basically, you need to flee from everything that captures your affections more than Jesus Christ does. Something calls for your time and attention and your effort and your devotion more than Christ. That becomes an idol. It may be something that's even in and of itself legitimate, but it becomes an idol because you assign too much to it. Flee from idolatry. And then in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22, flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. I think in our text in 1 Timothy 6, you could summarize the things the Christian is to flee from by saying he's to flee from this present evil world. Now, obviously, we're not able to leave this world in a physical sense, but we're to flee from the system of this world. We're to flee from the love of this world. We're to flee from the philosophy of this world or from the world view of this world. Don't, in other words, set your affection so much on what you gain in this world that you forget that this world is under God's curse and is destined to be burned up and replaced by a new and better world. Don't lose sight of that. This world is temporal. We're so tempted to think otherwise, aren't we? Especially when we walk by sight rather than by faith. Now, in verse 11, Paul explains how this is to be done. He gives us the other side of the coin, so to speak, in the matter of fleeing from this world. And that leads to my next point about the marks of a man of God. He's not only marked as a man who flees, but note, he's also marked as a man that follows. A man of God follows. Look again at the text. But thou, O man of God, Flee these things and follow after these other things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Paul's pretty good, isn't he, when it comes to giving precepts in their fullness. Some Christians, I'm afraid, are so bent on the first side of the coin that they miss out on the truth that they are on a mission while they're in this world. And their failure to realize that has them adopting a monastic attitude that says they'll flee to their monasteries and build walls around themselves and cut themselves off from the world and hope that the world leaves them alone if they in turn leave the world alone. It's not what the Christians to do. When Christ prayed for his disciples in John 17... And I'm sure you're aware of the fact that when he prayed for his disciples, his prayer went beyond those disciples that were with him at that point in in time. He was pointing for his disciples in the ensuing generations. 
And he said to his father in John 17 and verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. And in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, Paul writes, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. Do you see what Paul is saying there? Uh, you're not going to get away from these people, folks. They're out there, and you're going to see them. You're going to be exposed to them. So long as you're in this world, you're going to come into contact with the fornicators of this world and with the covetous and extortioners and idolaters. That's inevitable. You can't escape that truth. But the way we flee from this world is by following an altogether outlook, an altogether different outlook on this world, from this world. So the Christian is to follow after righteousness. And the Christian knows righteousness because he has the resource that reveals to him righteousness, which is the Bible. You think about that for a moment. If you have no Bible, you have no standard of righteousness. It's no wonder the world behaves the way they do. If they don't recognize any standard, then they feel the freedom to invent their own standard, and hence they call evil good and good evil. And we see that happening like never before these days, don't we? So the Christian, the man of God, he follows righteousness. He also follows godliness. In other words, he lives his life with reference to God. He's not ashamed to acknowledge God or Christ. He's not ashamed to pursue the things that are pleasing to God because he knows that he owes God everything because of so great salvation. And he follows faith by tending to his faith. Tell me, O oh Christian, this morning, do you tend to your faith? The way you tend to your faith is really quite simple. You tend to your faith by spending time in God's word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Time in prayer, time in church, time in personal devotion during which you commune with God and you come to know Christ more intimately and more deeply and more fully. Are you following after godliness? And when you're following righteousness, godliness, and faith, and something will happen in your life. You'll gain a greater love for Christ, and that love will show itself in your love for others, your love for your family, and your love for other Christians, and your love for your neighbor, etc. Something else will happen also. You'll gain patience. Now, the word for patience means literally steadfastness, constancy, or endurance. 
You'll persevere in the faith. And when this world and the things of this world oppress you and discourage you and dismay you, you'll patiently wait on Christ and wait for Christ, knowing as you do that he's redeemed you and that he rules and reigns and that he's coming again. And when your heart is filled by the Holy Spirit with the love of Christ, and you're knowing the breadth and length and depth and height of that love, then you'll also gain meekness. The last thing on the list that Paul tells us to follow after, meekness. Do you see it? But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Meekness, you know, is something that's despised from the world. I don't think the world understands its real meaning. But even if they did, they'd still despise it. Meekness, you see, doesn't mean weakness. It means submission. Submission to Christ. I humbly and cheerfully submit to his will and his ways. So verse 11 gives us two sides of the coin, so to speak. The one side is fleeing, the other side is following. And the way we flee the world is to follow the truth of Christ and his word. The two things go together, you see. The Christian flees from the world and follows Christ. Now that seems simple enough, doesn't it? And in a sense it is simple, but... Being simple doesn't mean that it's easy. Big difference between simple and easy. And in fact, it's not easy. The world holds an alluring power to us, and it finds a ready ally in our carnal natures. This is why we must move on to consider the next mark of the man of God. Not only does he bear the mark of fleeing and following, but would you note with me next, a man of God fights. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Pilgrim's progress always comes to my mind when I think of fighting the good fight of faith. As you follow Christian on his journey in that book, his journey to the celestial city, you have him constantly having to fight. At times he has to fight the devil himself, who doesn't willingly or easily give up his subjects. When Christ said to the Jews in John 8, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do, He was not necessarily singling out the Jews exclusively, but he was singling out all those who failed to believe in him. Paul reminds the Ephesians that in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You were at one time children of wrath, even as others, he says in the next verse. So the devil is against you, and he fights against you, 
and he's not the least bit impressed with you any more than he was impressed with Job after God commended Job to him. You remember that? Job chapter 1, Hast thou considered my servant Job? Who's he talking to when he says that? He's talking to Satan. And by the way, that's something worth noting. Uh, because some people have misunderstood Job that way. How often have you heard the book of Job is the story of Job challenging, or, or of Satan challenging God over Job? Well, ask yourself a simple question. Who raises the name of Job first, God or Satan? And it's God, which means that that whole trial was designed first and foremost and carried through by God, not by the devil. But in spite of that commendation, a very high commendation that Job receives from God, the devil's not impressed. Basically, the devil says to God, you have to buy your friends. Take away his possessions, he'll curse you to your face. And you know the story, God is quite happy to take up the challenge. Like Peter, you could say, the devil desires to sift you like wheat. He believes he can prove that at the end of the day, you're a phony. And so the man of God must contend against the devil. And he must be able to shield himself from the devil's fiery darts with the shield of faith. And he must fortify himself with the gospel. That's what those pieces of armor correspond to in Ephesians 6. They are figures of speech that correspond to various aspects of the gospel. Arm yourselves, therefore, with the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of Christ's imputed righteousness. Know how to follow Christ's example when he fought the devil using the sword of the Spirit. But the devil's not the only foe that you face. And again, Pilgrim's Progress comes to mind. Another scene that finds Christian, and I want to say hopeful, I might be wrong in that, but I'm going to go with hopeful. You proved me wrong. I'll uh, repent and uh, correct uh, that part of the story. But two of them, uh, Christian and another character that I think is hopeful, they're, they're locked up in Doubting Castle, held prisoner by the giant despair. And what insight John Bunyan shows when he brings his readers into the conversation between giant despair and his wife. When are you going to slay them? The giant's wife wants to know. And the giant answers, he's not going to slay them. He's going to just so depress them and dismay them and discourage them that they kill themselves. Oh, and how that scene reflects the discouragement and despair that comes upon Christians and makes them wonder, like Job himself wondered, if it's worth it to follow after Christ. I'm really glad you know that the Lord gave us Psalm 73 and Psalm 77. I believe they both find the man of God locked up in Doubting Castle being held prisoner by the giant despair. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, 
The psalmist says in Psalm 73 in verse 3, For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. And as the psalmist looked on the way, he perceived the lives of the wicked to be so easy, he then goes on to complain in verses 13 and 14, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency, for all the day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. They have it easy, I have it rough. Why do I serve God? It's the psalmist's complaint. In Psalm 77, the psalmist's complaints become even more intense. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Oh, I look at statements like that and I say, if those weren't recorded in the Bible, I'd be afraid to use them. Basically, you find the psalmist accusing God of being a liar. You're not faithful to your promises, God. Now, in both instances, the psalmist is having to fight the good fight of faith. And the way he fights that battle in Psalm 73 is by going to the house of the Lord where he receives a perspective adjustment. And you know, that's one of the major purposes that church should serve, helping you to adjust your perspective when you have been so bombarded by the world's perspective for the other six days of the week. And the way he fights the battle in Psalm 77 is by recognizing that the source of his doubts and misgivings are traceable to his own infirmities and his own weaknesses, and then he remembers God. The point I'm now making is that the man of God must fight. He must become like Christ in that respect. Christ himself insists on it. So in addressing the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, we find Christ saying in verse 21, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. You are to be like Christ, which means that you fight as Christ fought. And if ever there was a key to being more than conquerors given to us in the New Testament, it's the key that Paul gives us in Romans 8 and verse 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Here's how we fight the fight and win the fight. We are more than conquerors. How? Through him that loved us. And then Paul follows up on the thing that enables him to be more than a conqueror by letting his readers know that the thing he's persuaded of in the depth of his soul is just this. For I am persuaded. And if you're going to fight the good fight, you need to be persuaded of this. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Oh, there is the key, the major key to fighting the fight of faith. Know that nothing in this world can separate you from the love of Christ. I think Joseph in the Old Testament probably knew that. And that's one of the reasons why that man could spiritually prosper, even when he was sold by his brothers into slavery, and then ends up in the house of Potiphar. He attains a very comfortable station there for a while until he's slanderously uh, accused of the very sin that Potiphar's wife was trying to commit, and then he's cast into prison. And even in the midst of all that, do we have that testimony that the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, he prospered. Spiritual prosperity, you see, cannot be gauged simply by the external circumstances of life. And if it is gauged by the external circumstances of life, then you're probably not faring so well in the spiritual battle that you're having to fight. You're walking too much by sight and not enough by faith. The solution, of course, is to visit the cross of Christ where you find the greatest demonstration of love that divine wisdom could conceive. Christ giving his life to redeem our souls. Now let me, for the sake of time here, merge the last mark of the man of God in my analysis with what I'm saying about the mark of such a man that he's a fighter. Paul says in verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. I think you could probably put those things together too, like two sides of a coin. That's where the good fight of faith will lead you. It will lead you to lay hold on eternal life. In other words, you believe that through the love of Christ, you have gained eternal life. You believe that in dying for your sins, Christ won for you eternal life. Laying hold of eternal life is tantamount then of laying hold of Christ himself. And this is life eternal. Christ prays to his father, John 17 and verse 3, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Christ defines eternal life as knowing God and knowing Christ. So if you're going to lay hold on eternal life, you need to lay hold on Jesus Christ himself, who is the source of your life and the purpose for your life and the blessing in your life. It is all Christ-focused. Lay hold on him. So tell me now, and I'm done. Okay, we're bringing it to a close now. Tell me, you who profess faith in Christ, do you bear the marks of a man of God? They're not marks that uh, only mature and spiritually minded Christians should bear. Neither are they marks that should be borne exclusively by Christian leaders pastors, elders, deacons, though they, of course, should bear these marks, but not they alone. These are marks that should identify all true Christians. A Christian, then, is marked as a man who flees from sin, who follows after the things that are pleasing to God, he fights the good fight of faith, and he lays hold on eternal life. 
Oh, may the Lord give you the needed grace and strength and help of a spirit that you may bear these marks so that you'll stand out as being a man or woman of Christ. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, bring this meeting to a close. We pray that with thy help, we may bear these marks, dear Lord. May we flee from sin. May we flee from fornication and idolatry and a love of this world. And may we follow after instead the things that are pleasing to thee love and patience and godliness and faith and righteousness. Oh, Lord, may we be devoted with all our hearts to the pursuit, the wholehearted pursuit of these things, knowing as we do, Lord, that we'll gain none of them without a fight. So help us to be willing to engage in that fight, and may we be victorious in that fight as we grow in grace and in our knowledge of Christ and gain increased understanding and appreciation for the breadth and length and depth and height of that love which surpasses knowledge. So hear our prayers, dear God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.